domestic abuse on this edition of Truth and Love. I'm Dale Johnson, and you're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, where we seek to provide biblical solutions for the problems that people face. This week, we have Reverend Chris Moles joining us. Chris is an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance. He's also an ACBC certified biblical counselor. He's a senior pastor of Grace Community Chapel in Eleanor, West Virginia. You know, he's written a book called The Heart of Domestic Abuse, and it is a great resource in dealing with uh, these issues of abuse and how to think about gospel solutions, particularly for men who often use violence and control in their homes. And uh, Chris is very practical in this work. He's very helpful in this work, and I would recommend it to you. And this week, uh, Sean Perrone, our former director of operations, who now serves, praise the Lord, as the associate pastor of First Baptist Jacksonville, he caught up with Chris to interview Chris to talk about this very important work that he's written and this very important subject, which we see is significantly impacting the culture that we live in. So listen to Sean and Chris as they talk about this very important subject. Chris, thank you for joining us on the Truth and Love podcast today. We know that you have been doing ministry and counseling ministry to abuse victims for a while now, and you have your helpful book, which is uh, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, which uh, Dr. Stuart Scott has endorsed. And we, I'm curious personally, what brought that book about? What ministry were you doing in your life that showed the need for that book? Yeah, so for me, my involvement in domestic violence prevention intervention began about 12 years ago. I was already working part-time in criminal corrections. I'd been teaching classes for a day report center uh, on the side. It's just an answer to prayer. I asked uh, God for help to get engaged in our community and being part of a small church. We didn't really have the resources to do much, and so I got this opportunity to teach one day a week. It was in that context about 12 years ago that I was approached by the Day Reporting Center about a new program uh, for men uh, who had been convicted of domestic violence crimes. Mm. And so, yeah, it was about 12 years ago uh, as a part-time job to kind of help supplement the income um, that, so I guess greed is the reason that we got involved. But uh, (laughs) I really jumped into that work um, really as as a means of a little extra cash, and it turned out to be super influential as I learned about the problem of domestic violence, new issue for me 12 years ago. I just had a wonderful childhood, incredible men. The Moles men are just incredible people, um, the, the, the men who raised me. And so I had no exposure really to domestic violence. And so working with these men informed me, um, educated me on the problem, and then working with advocates and then victims allowed me to see the significance of it. Uh, it wasn't long after that that I began working on my Master's of Arts in Biblical Counseling. And those two worlds just collided perfectly uh, because perpetrator accountability is not too far afield from biblical counseling, high on responsibility, high on accountability. And so I began writing my papers. And that's where uh, Dr. Scott, for instance, uh, was reading and responding to my papers. And so they, that kind of helped get the book rolling. And so, uh, yeah, so out of that experience of working with men, victim advocates and victims, we uh, produced the book. And since then, I've just been... Uh, in addition to pastoring the church and still working in corrections, 
traveling around the country doing things like this, trying to educate the church. And uh, I really believe that the church, and in particular biblical counselors, have the answers to see the church become the safest place on the planet, which has not been true. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you a couple of potentially hard questions. You've heard them in the past, I'm sure. But for people, we have a wide range of uh, listeners in our audience, people who've been doing counseling for a long time, people this is new to the counseling arena. What would you say to someone who uh, they are in a church, uh, they're, they have a couple come to them for counseling, or maybe it's just the husband, or maybe it's the wife, and they say, I'm being mistreated, I'm being abused, I need your help. What would, the, what would you say to that person, that counselor, what do they need to be thinking about right now, immediately? Yeah, so I would probably, um, certainly we can't do anything exhaustive on the podcast, but one thing I would encourage biblical counselors to do is to really revert back on our training. One of the things that I value about biblical counseling is the emphasis on those key essential elements. Mm -hmm. And so let's just highlight a couple of them that I think will be tremendously beneficial. Number one is data gathering or gathering relevant information. It's important to spend time with individuals who come forward with disclosure to gather data. And one of the ways I put this is um, when cases of abuse, you rarely see, I call it the whole train, uh, but you rarely see every element you're getting snapshots. And for biblical counselors, we, we tend to want things um, really packaged really nice, sin or suffering. Abuse is this uh, weird marble cake of sin and suffering, and everybody's sinning and everybody's suffering, and it's and you're going to sin and suffer as a counselor trying to help. But uh, I think data gathering is huge and um, continuing to pull the rope. Because with abuse, Sean, one of the things you're looking for is a pattern. And so incidents are fine, but I've learned with perpetrators, if I address a single incident, they're keen and willing to address that incident, but continue to use power and control. And so I I say we run the risk of creating polite abusers who commit acceptable sins uh, once we've called them to account. So what I recommend first is pull the rope, gather data, get more information, right? Uh, The the second thing I think is build involvement and uh, I would even lean towards, on the suffering side, Bob Kellerman's statement about crawling in the casket. I would really encourage counselors to invest uh, in that person and build that involvement. And then lastly, offer hope. And the reason why um, I want to caveat this, and, and then we can move on, is really put hope where it belongs. And I think that's an issue that biblical counselors, we can do a better job. We tend to uh, offer hope in marriage-focused solutions. And in cases of abuse, we're not dealing with a marriage problem. We're dealing with a power and a heart problem, power over. And so um, I would say put hope where it belongs, which is in Jesus Christ. And so I'm calling victims to the glory of God and conforming to Christ, and we're calling perpetrators to the glory of God and conforming to Christ. And those two processes will look different as we confront the abuser and as we comfort the victim. Um, I'm I'm not opposed to hope in marriage. I want to see marriages restored. I just think if we take our eye off the prize, if marriage becomes more important than glorifying God, then I think we actually are um, destroying both the, the people and the marriage. We have our best chance at marriage restoration by addressing the sin and the sufferer. Mm-hmm. So for a married couple, um, and they're, let's say the wife is being abused by the husband, let's say physically abused, she comes to you and she says, I want my marriage to work. I want it to last. 
but this is a problem. How, how is it, is it possible for the marriage to work? Is it possible for it to be restored? Is it like, what would you say to that woman who's, she's crying in your office and she's like, how can this, can, is this even a possibility? Yeah. So I, uh, I think we do this a lot in biblical counseling anyway, which is we redefine the goal, right? There's a part of me that wants their marriage to work because I know that marriage restoration will include repentance, really evidentiary repentance because a person has confessed and turned from their sin. So I want that too because that's going to be a side effect, a, a, an indicator of a transformed life. So praise God for that. But like any biblical counseling session, I want to turn the goal to the glory of God. And so even if uh, we're kind of in the beginning stages of biblical counseling as, as we're learners, right? If you're, if you're new to this movement, uh, you've probably already been exposed to something like 2 Corinthians 5, 9, right? I make it my aim to please him whether I'm dead or alive, basically. So uh, whether I'm with him there or down here. And the idea is still the same. You know, Sally, I, I love you. I want to help. We're going to be here for you. There's been a great wickedness um, committed against you. I want you to know that I'm going to use everything within my power in combination with the Spirit, the people of God, the Word of God, uh, to draw glory to God. That's my goal. Now, if your husband repents and it's significant and it's evidentiary, then praise God, we'll deal with the restoration. But I want to be honest with her about uh, the problem in front of us. Um, and so I, I would want to give glory to God first. That's my primary goal, even though I love marriage. Mm -hmm. But I think the glory of God is first, right, because we don't want to rush marriage reconciliation without having addressed the abuse. And so uh, one of my friends puts it this way, as we were wrestling through this, uh, as I was writing the book, uh, another biblical counselor, he said, we want to do abuse counseling before we engage in marriage counseling. And that's been a really helpful standard. We want to address this fully and completely with the Word of God before we work on marriage counseling. So same situation. Mm -hmm. How can you keep that woman safe? What needs to happen? Yeah, so one of the things that I would recommend first is we really need to make sure that our interventions are consistent with, with two things. Number one, victim request. So I want to make sure that she is giving me input and that I'm listening to her request. If there's an immediate threat, of uh, significant harm or death, which I would really recommend that biblical counselors read on lethality assessments and learning the risks, such as the presence of weapons, uh, is the abuser abusing pets, things like that. Uh, we want people to be safe. Um, but I also want the victim to have a say in that because they know him better than I'll ever know him. And most situations, I recommend separation if there's physical force. There are some situations where she feels much safer knowing where he's at. And so our safety planning has to correspond to that. You know, I, I, Pastor, I would rather stay in the home because the uncertainty of not knowing where he's at is harder than the certainty, you know, of being near him in close proximity. Okay, well, how can we come alongside you? How can we help? So safety planning is a big piece of that. And safety plans can be as simple as if an abusive episode happens or attention is building towards that point, who are you going to call? Where are you going to go? Um, do you have money available? Who's picking up the kids? And us helping her structure that would, would be good. So, um, yeah, I really want her input. The second thing is if there's criminal activity and, and law enforcement's been involved, uh, there usually is some kind of protective orders in place. If there's a civil order, for instance, or even a criminal order, I want to make sure any of our responses as biblical counselors are consistent with those orders. 
as a Romans 13 type of measure. So if the order, if there's a, a legal order in place, a civil or criminal order that says no contact, then I really want to make sure that we're preparing to not bring them into the same room, right, and insist on marriage counseling or even worship services can be tricky in some places. So I want to really balance that out. So twofold, her input is important, and then any input from civil authorities I want to take into consideration. We live in a culture where this is a very hot topic. What would you say to the biblical counselor who is quite honestly scared about this? They're scared that they're going to say the wrong thing. They're scared they're going to give the wrong advice. And so they do nothing. Or they do something drastic. Uh, Help biblical counselors think about, I'm nervous. I'm afraid I'm going to get lit up online. I'm afraid I'm going to get ousted from my position if I do this or don't do that. And I don't even know what to do. I don't know. Maybe that's too broad, but what would you say? I think you're right on. I, I, my first, my first statement would be, you might be right. You know, Sean, one of the things that happens a lot in our movement and I love our movement. I I tried to make that very clear uh, in, in my time this week, how much I love biblical counselors and, and they're my tribe. You guys are, you know, my people. Um, one of the things that happens a lot at biblical counseling conferences in particular is I'll be introduced and I'll say, Chris talks about a very controversial subject. And it always strikes me as to what is controversial about wanting to protect women and children. What's controversial about wanting men to, to um, just live the way Christ called us to live if we claim to be Christians. What's so controversial about accountability? Like to me, it's like, this is what we're supposed to be doing, but it does come with a price because we do live in a culture where this has been, uh, I think the most mismanaged and misunderstood problem by the church. And so there are risks and I've received, you know, I've actually had the consequences of those risks. I've been lit up online. I've had things said about me that, that I don't think are true. Um, but nonetheless, we have to keep pursuing what Christ has called us to. So I think that's the number one thing You, you have to weigh the risk, but know that the calling is, you know, more important than the risk. And then secondly, by the way, and this is going to sound awful for some folks, it can be really hard to hear. Our momentary suffering of being questioned or critiqued or blasted online is minuscule and nothing compared to the suffering that a victim is encountering on a daily basis in a coercively controlling power over relationship. So I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, right? So I have everything. I have Holy Spirit power, resurrection power, I want to know Christ in that, but I also want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. If my momentary suffering in taking a stand gives me a taste, not even a full taste, but just a little taste at what my sister's been enduring for possibly decades, yeah, we should be able to really take that and run with it. So that would that would be, I think, my initial gut response to that, that it is hard work and you will have some pushback on it, but we we have to keep moving forward because we know what's true and what's right. And so we want to be those Philippians 4 type of Christians who think in such a way that then the God of peace will accompany us in that. And that's really what we're searching for mm-hmm. is peace in a world at war mm-hmm. and peace in hearts at war. And so the gospel of peace is, is really worth the sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You speak on this topic a lot. What are some ways in which you are misunderstood after you're done speaking? Yeah, so it probably depends on the audience because God has really blessed us to have a broad audience um, with, with this. And so, and, and part of it too is the time constraints, right? Mm-hmm. And so at a conference like the one we're, we're attending this week, you know, you get 50 minutes um, and you try to cram 
five hours of content into 50 minutes. So I think in those type of settings, some of the misunderstandings um, would would revolve around um, my view of men and women, which is really interesting. Uh, I hold a complementarian view uh, of, of marriage. And so I think the covenantal relationship, men and women have d- distinct roles as husbands and wives. And so I hold men... Uh, to a pretty high standard. I, I jokingly call it the Spider-Man theology. With great power comes great responsibility. Um, surprisingly, a lot of folks interpret that to, to mean that I'm saying that women don't sin. Um, of course, that's not true. I mean, and, and any uh, wife would tell you that they sin. And most victims actually will be very eager to take responsibility and to claim their own sin. Uh, what I tend to communicate is because power is such a key player, men tend to be. Um, more likely to abuse their wife than their wives abuse their husbands. And even behavior that's committed by either party that's sinful, uh, it's more likely to be abusive if the man commits it because of the power dynamic. You do see a lot more um, of those tactics used by women against children, but you don't necessarily see women using those tactics against their husband in the same way. And even if they did, it, it would cultivate annoyance or frustration far more than fear. So I think that's a big one. And then in other contexts, the flip side is true. So if I'm in a, a closer to a secular environment or if I'm doing a training with like a Department of Justice thing or I'm doing a collaborative deal, um, it, it's almost appalling that I'm complementarian mm-hmm. <laughs> because many folks on the outside world and even our egalitarian brothers and sisters tend to view complementarity as the cause of domestic violence mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to seeing, and a lot of that's our fault because we haven't properly taught headship from a Christ perspective. I, I tend to talk about having a Jesus hermeneutic, understanding headship from the perspective of Christ. If I think if we have a good understanding of headship, we know that's not a top-down power-over process. It's a bottom-up power-under process where Jesus used his power to empower, not to diminish. Uh, but many of our friends on the outside uh, don't see that. They hear the word head and they think top-down uh, domination type model. And so I think those are areas that it's nice to have time to nuance, but you don't always. And so in a setting like we're at this week, that just means you're going to have some personal Q&A time, and that's good. So you can nuance a little bit that, yes, I do believe that women sin, um, but I really want to hold men accountable uh, to the ways in which they're sinning in this topic and then in other settings to be able to say, look, there's more to complementarity, uh, which is good because it's it's amazing to see uh, some of my friends maybe that are uh, more on the humanistic or even feminist side, hearing complementarity presented for the first time outside of this caricature of patriarchy. You're listening to Truth and Love, a podcast of ACBC. You know, it's very apparent in recent days that our churches are woefully inadequate in handling issues of abuse. And our churches need to be ready to handle these very difficult and often dicey situations that entail abuse, dealing with abuse. And so churches of all places ought to be prepared and equipped and ready to deal with these very difficult issues and situations in life. We are preparing and gearing up for the Southern Baptist Convention, and 
We want to provide a resource for you. We want to provide several important resources that that help you as a church or you as a pastoral staff think through, what do I do? How do I handle situations of abuse when uh, someone reports that an issue is going on or maybe a child has alleged that there's been a sexual misconduct? And what do we do? What are our responsibilities as uh, unto God? our biblical responsibilities, and what are our responsibilities to local authorities? How do we deal with that? We want to provide you with helpful resources. And so I want to encourage you, if you are in and around the Southern Baptist Convention, would you stop by the ACBC booth? We'd love to talk to you about this issue, and we'd love to give you some of the free resources that we've developed just for these subjects. You know, it's one of our goals to make sure that we're, we're constantly producing material that encourages and helps to build the church to appropriately, biblically, and responsibly care for their people in both a safe and biblical way that honors the Lord Jesus. We will be making these resources available on our website, biblicalcounseling.com. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you were not able to make it to the Southern Baptist Convention meeting, We're going to make those available to you, and we want to provide you with a resource that we think will be helpful for you in dealing with these very difficult subjects. That way you're not abdicating your responsibility to care, but you're engaging. You're standing in the gap for those who have been abused, misused, and who are hurting from the situations that they've been involved in in life. If you want more information on this subject of abuse, I want to remind you that we dedicated an entire annual conference in 2018 to this subject, and you'll find those resources at biblicalcounseling.com.